0: Hello oh, and welcome to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club Podcast, where we read them so you don't have to, because the dawn is your enemy. My name is Kevin and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Benedict, the dawn. Benedict! <laughs> what's at the top of your Netflix watch list at the moment?
1: Uh, as in, what's going to be ne- the next thing I watch?
0: Uh, I don't know, that or, or... what you want to tell people to watch. Okay. It wasn't a very well thought out question. <laughs> no, it
1: could have been worded better. Um, uh, I haven't been on Netflix for a while, actually, to be honest. I am really? mostly on.
0: Um, okay, I don't. It's not restricted not to a ne- particular okay, so, streaming. Okay, We're well, not advertising Kevin, Netflix here. You're a lawyer. Netflix is like the Kleenex please, of streaming please platforms.
1: Please be precise with your language. <laughs> um, I don't know. I like personally the thing I'm like counting down to is the <laughs> the Premier League coming back, the soccer oh, Premier God. League, which is is uh, supposed to be uh good. Well, I know it is going to be good, uh, and my team is good. So that's what I'm most excited for, streaming-wise, upcoming, I would say. Fine, fine. Um, what about I get, you? Some weird well, you know how, shit?
0: Well, just before I, I say mine, you know how my uh, algorithms are all fucked up, just yep. all over the place? So these days, I basically get two kinds of ads. Okay. Uh, and they, you know they shift from time to time, but right now... I am bombarded by Daily Mail ads oh, for that okay. fucking what is a woman movie and shit like that
1: Oh uh, okay. on
0: one hand. And on the other hand, I am bombarded by soccer ads like Fox Sports soccer ads and stuff. And I okay. have no idea why. <laughs> that, that doesn't really doesn't, match no, up to anything. That
1: doesn't click. They're like, yeah, I no, in the Midwest. I, I have I no
0: know. idea why I'm getting all these soccer ads <laughs> There's all not over the not much to do in the
1: Midwest, and soccer's coming eh, back soon. True, here true. You go.
0: And they are, like, they've built a soccer stadium, and we're going to have a team here in St. Louis oh, cool. coming up soon. So maybe it's a geographic it won't thing. It
1: will be a good one. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: I, I was just going to say, I use Netflix mostly now for foreign, like, international TV shows. So I watch a lot of uh-huh. Korean, Korean stuff and... Um, spanish stuff on you and your
0: k-drama soap operas love a K-drama. just can't get enough (laughs) honestly why
1: why would i watch general hospital when i could watch (laughs) when i could watch a soap opera and say that it's reading (laughs) how many books have you read none but i've read 12 episodes
0: of (laughs) k-drama that is a good excuse that's a good excuse well uh for me i'm gonna recommend uh this is something i just watched uh with one of my partners the other day uh, is How to Build a Sex Room on Netflix. Wow, okay.
1: Um,
0: you know what? I'm very proud of Netflix for having done this show. Sure. It is, It is. Uh, uh, I think it's going to open some people's eyes to some things. Uh-huh. Um, and it's also going to be a fun show for people who do reaction videos of them watching things with their parents. Oh, okay. So, yep. <laughs> there's going to be a little bit of calm. How, eh? a little bit. It's uh, also going to be fun for people with shared Netflix accounts. Yes. When one person watches it and the rest of the family is like, So who... Continue watching? (laughs) Uh, How graphic is it? It's not... Like, okay, I saw a nipple. Okay. Like, there was... On the whole eight episodes, I think I saw a nipple, and I think it was an accidental shot that I ended up seeing a nipple. Like, that's it. But it's it's like... It is. I Are you will you just say, on
1: like high alert for nipples at all times if you saw course, it in an accident? Obviously. Okay,
0: obviously. Cool. Uh, but the so there's this old British woman that who is an so interior. Right. It's an interior design show, basically. Okay. That's what it is. Right. It's
1: an interior design okay, show. Hold on. Is it is it one is it one house per episode or is it an eight episode? So arc it's for eight, eight
0: episodes, and I think they do like six or seven different homes. Six okay. Or seven so so couples.
1: one of the homes was of two episodes. Was, well, it, so it, it was, some of them sort of
0: bleed over at the see? end of the episode oh, okay, in the okay. way that a normal interior like design show does. Yeah, so they'll do, yeah, like, see. we're you know, um, they have the people yeah, walking into their new sex room, and then it's like, ah, next episode. In the beginning of the next episode, you see them actually reacting to their new room and stuff. Okay. So it's like that. All right. But it's actually, I thought it was fantastic as someone, you know, I think people could guess about me. I'm not exactly vanilla. I'm a bisexual, polyamorous weirdo. Uh, but, uh, so...
1: You know, the the weirdo bit isn't related. to No, the not at all. Not at clear. all. That's, That's just the, me yeah, as a human yeah,
0: okay, being. Yeah. But no, I no, really no. enjoyed it. Seeing people because this this one, hey, the woman they got the interior did she, designer. Did she she's like fantastic. Push,
1: did she push people's boundaries? She did, did try, she try to push like,
0: them. She, she got okay. some people who were into like kink and stuff. And so like they were all on board and they were just telling her what they wanted. Right. Like she got this one group. It was like a polycule of like seven people uh who were just all together and like they're just like naming their kinks and she's like okay I'm going to put in all that stuff for you and she just built a beautiful room for them. Uh and then there were other people where it's like you know their sex life sucks. And so she's mm-hmm. like trying to get them to push boundaries trying a little to bit. Fix it, yeah, yeah a little know, bit that. of that kind of stuff. And she is incredibly fun. I love this woman, the interior designer who they got um who you know I think as far as I can tell has some experience in this sort of stuff
1: you would think you wouldn't think that that's something you'd yeah. go into cold. yeah right like that you would hope that she has some <laughs> well experience. you know the whole tagline for the show God. is like she's
0: been designing primarily sex rooms for like the last 10 years or something okay. which i don't so know if i believe that because i don't know how much business you can get just doing sex in, rooms.
1: in the uk hidden sex rooms <laughs> Hey, there so are plenty
0: there are plenty of uh you know estates there built I'm in the sixteen hundreds that have in a secret sex room that, somewhere yeah. in them. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, makes yeah, sense yeah, to yeah. me. But it's a great show. It's a really, really great show. I highly recommend it. Uh everyone go check it out. It's a whole lot of fun.
1: If you want to. Yeah, if you,
0: <laughs> Consent is always important. Yeah, if yeah, you yeah. want to. That is always <laughs> important. Uh, but anyways, Benedict, you probably <laughs> now know I feel very vanilla with <laughs> my you should watch soccer. <laughs> you probably know. <laughs> Some of the people out there don't what exactly it is that we do here on this program. And uh, for them, I would say, this is a show where we go deep, 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 deep into the sex womb of right-wing thought. <laughs> sex womb. The sex womb. Wow,
1: that was, that was, that was bad, really... That was a bad <laughs> yeah. flub of a word. That was, to plumb
0: yeah, was... the depths of right-wing thought by reviewing a chapter from work of conservative nonfiction, and in between, taking a look at other examples of the right, doing their best to make America hate again. Benedict, start us off. Do you have a hot take for us this week?
1: Yeah, it, I do. And it is the kimchi pancake is like the perfect. Oh, snack. you
0: know what? I fucking had one of those not long ago. Yeah?
1: I just had one for lunch. It says really on my I brain. I love kimchi. It's, it's... I
0: like spicy kimchi. What's your kimchi? Yeah, meat? me too. Me okay, too. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, all yeah. about the spicy. G-
1: generally, if there's a spicy option for foods, mm-hmm. I prefer the yes, spicy. you
0: know, it's option. like if it's just regular, yeah, non spicy kimchi to me tastes. So a, that's just beans
1: and cabbage. It tastes a little skunky. You, you know the- what I mean? It, well, I I mean I think it has its place mm. personally, but you know it it adds some depth of flavor. But uh, yeah, spicy. Yeah, I like that nice kick. That's what I'm all about. Preferred option. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I think it, that with like a little dipping sauce of black vinegar and sesame oil, whoo, whoo, and soy sauce, just a little soy sauce. Mm. That's a, that's a perfect snack. Stuff. And it's so easy to make. It's flour, water, kimchi, and scallion.
0: That's it. Mm. Delicious.
1: Do that. Everyone make it. If you've never had a kimchi pancake, go make a <laughs> kimchi pancake. <laughs>
0: I also I think I told you about this, but I found an amazing place in St. Louis uh, called Saucy oh, the Porca. Place? Yeah, okay, Puerto yeah, Rican yeah. Vietnamese fusion. Interesting. Uh, for whatever reason, we are incapable of actually doing this episode this week. We're just talking about shit. Uh, so yep, yeah, but it's this funny. place uh, Carnitas
1: because it's, it's not not a fun episode. <laughs> right? was, uh, carnitas
0: yeah. Faux blew my mind. Fucking Ooh. blew my mind. Perfect flavor I... combination.
1: Fuck Carnitas. Oh, it was.
0: It was amazing. It was really amazing. I, and I think this place, it has like two locations in Chicago, and they just opened one in St. Louis because the founder is from St. Louis originally. Good. So really, really amazing place. If you're in Chicago or somewhere you can get it, try it out. I was, oh, You
1: should have told me. I was there ah,
0: I was blown away by it. It was so good.
1: Um, my favorite Vietnamese restaurant name, just out of nowhere, There's the, we went uh, up hiking in New Hampshire in a place called Keen. And there was a, there was a fur shop that was called Fur Keen Great. <laughs> <laughs> and the, uh, the, 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 local townspeople, you know what, you know what? that name. one, that one deserves <laughs> hat tip, rumble, cut eight, go.
0: <laughs> good on you. Good on you. Fur <laughs> <Yeah>. Keen <King> Great.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was good. And the, the local townspeople were not happy. And then <laughs> the judge was like, I don't get it. Why aren't you ha-, like playing real dumb? And then they had to be like, well, cause it sounds like a swear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it reminds me I think there was a Saturday night live skit a while back uh which was a, it was a sofa king right so sofa yeah. King is so deals are sofa King great and the same thing <laughs> same thing good idea uh but my yeah. hot take since I don't know I thought I had one uh obvious things are obvious and by which I mean Steve Bannon convicted on two counts of yeah, course he sometimes was.
1: I text you things just to start a conversation mm-hmm. and you went yeah I already knew that and I'm like well okay <laughs> that's the end of the conversation then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay but to be fair okay i have tweet alerts set for your account so i see when you okay. tweet
1: no i, see I that, had yeah.
0: literally just tweeted about that right before you texted me about steve bannon okay so i had All assumed right, so. that you would have similar set up for me and that you I would do, know but
1: i don't uh, i don't necessarily wow. look at my tweets wow, wow. that's them. a
0: rough way of telling me you don't care about my tweets it's really I romantic. do,
1: I, 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 my, my top search in, uh, in my Twitter account is, <laughs> okay
0: because I like to see oh, what you do at
1: USA. Well,
0: anyways, on to housekeeping this week, uh, remember to rate and review us on the iTunes, follow us on all the social medias, uh, and of course, um, we have some people to induct into the spooky world, new world order this week. First off, at home, I hope on Twitter, uh, who I believe is, is the Andes is the non handle version of that person. Uh, but thank you so very much. You're now part of our. New world, spooky world order. Yeah. At Dan Irizarry.
1: What, what, what did what did
0: they? Uh, do? I didn't write these down because it's been a week. <laughs> I think these people all just you know promoted the show, said the show was great. And okay, stuff. cool, so, awesome. Yeah, nice. Them. Uh, at nice. Dan Irizarry nice. on Twitter, you are now part of our. New world, spooky world order. Yeah. Joseph Lennox, you are now part of our.
1: New world, spooky world order. Yeah.
0: And at Q You are now part of our New World Spooky World Order. Thank you all so very much. And of course, if you would like to become part of our Spooky World New World Order, just tweet or post about the show on social media, recommending it to others, send me a screenshot or tag us in it. Leave us a five-star review wherever you can and drop me a screenshot to let me know. Make a donation to a worthwhile charity. Send me some sort of proof that you did so. Become a patron or just get my attention with something good. You know, make you part of it. Benedict, all that out of the way this week. Yep, we get to our right. episode. Which as I told you, and as the person who's listening to the episode is titled A New Fascism for a Neo Era. Which I think is mm. a clever turn of phrase. I really enjoy that.
1: Yeah, if you have to say that it's clever, then it kind of loses. You know, some of because neo
0: fascism ties no, into I, neo-Nazis I, I and neo and no, a, you know, I get it's, it. a, it's a it's yeah. yeah, 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 it's nice. I like it. But Benedict, <clears throat> In twenty seventeen. Marvel Comics ran a gigantic crossover event, which is something they do basically every summer, which had been years in the making and encapsulated... The most
1: ambitious crossover event of all time. Wait, what was that? What did people say?
0: (laughs) You know what? I don't remember. remember That was like a big joke for a while. People made so many jokes Was it Infinity War? I I think it might have been Infinity War. No, I don't know. I think it might have been it. it Or Endgame. I don't know. Uh, But this encapsulated the entire Marvel Universe. It was called Secret Empire. And it was scripted by a writer named Nick Spencer. And it's equal parts sort of inspired by the 1935 Sinclair Lewis novel It Couldn't Happen Here and the political events going on at the time in the United States. And the full plot line would take me hours to explain. And if you want a deep dive on that, I highly recommend go check out the video uh, that YouTuber Jose did on it, which I have linked in the show notes. But the basics of it boil down to this. A sentient version of the Cosmic Cube, the Tesseract, if you watch the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, was tricked by the Red Skull, which is, you know, Captain Rogers, Captain Steve Rogers, Captain America's main enemy, into manipulating mm-hmm. reality. The Nazi. The Nazi.
1: Ma- he, it's yeah, a yeah.
0: bit more complicated than that, I will say, as far as whether or not the Red Skull is a Nazi, but...
1: Are you arguing about whether or not is a Hydra pre-existed
0: <laughs> the Nazis, and the way that Marvel has, has come down on it is that Hydra was manipulating the Nazis... Not necessarily the Hydra are Nazis, which is, I think, a distinction without a difference. Right. It doesn't entirely matter. But, it's
1: the same thing.
0: So, the Red Skull manipulated the sentient Cosmic Cube, which took the form of a little girl, into manipulating mm-hmm. reality to change the backstory of Steve Rogers, a.k.a. Captain America, where instead of the original story we all know, wholesome kid who wants to fight Nazis, but he's too small, he's the product of a broken home, and where he and his mother are taken in by Hydra, who raise him to be their greatest creation. So in the present day, we're in the aftermath of an event named Civil War II, in which Mm -hmm. Iron Man and Captain Marvel fought over what to do about an Inhuman, which is basically someone who was from a race created by aliens, so they have powers. But this Inhuman could see the future. and It's a very obvious security versus privacy storyline, reminiscent of Minority Report, right? So that's obviously an influence on the story. And Captain America, who by this point is the Hydra version of Captain America, but who has been pretending to just be regular old Steve Rogers... And who basically has, you know, everyone feels the same about him as they have.
1: So this is like Marvel's version of The Departed. Sort of, right, right.
0: (laughs) yeah. But this Hydra version of Steve Rogers is taking advantage of all this chaos and division among the heroes to launch his Mm -hmm. plan. And at this time, he's not actually Captain America. He has passed the mantle on to Sam Wilson, the Falcon, and a black man. And Captain America, or Steve Rogers now, is actually just the head of S.H.I.E.L.D. So when chaos takes over amid, you know, a fear of mutants, which is constant in the Marvel Universe, and now these new Inhumans, which are a new group of people with powers, um, as well as an alien invasion that was caused by Steve Rogers, a false flag, if you will. uh, He manages to trick the U.S. into giving him complete control over the military and this response system that's in place that creates like a giant shield around the Earth to keep the aliens Mm. out. And he uses this to sort of trap some of the aliens off planet, or some of the the heroes off planet. Uh, and in a confrontation with other heroes who come to stop Steve Rogers, Steve picks up and wields Mjolnir, Thor's hammer, which anyone nice. who knows the lore knows that only those How does he do that? only those who well, are worthy. Well, impressive. because again, the Cosmic Cube trick it changes it from those who are worthy to I think those who are the most powerful, or those some I forget what they change it to to who is able to wield the hammer just for that moment. Okay, so. They see Steve Rogers, someone that they've always known to be a good man, and the ideal hero, doing what they believe to be evil, because they see him taking over the world and instituting a fascist state, but because Uh they see him pick up Mjolnir, they're struck with doubt, and they aren't able to act. Uh, Thor actually goes into a depression, and and is it's a really interesting part of the storyline.
1: That happens quite a lot to him. It yeah, seems yeah, like it just does. various different it storylines.
0: It's a story about the corruption and co-option of symbols, and how that's a key tool and element of fascism.
1: Is this just a story about that Georgia school that accidentally made a Nazi symbol? <laughs> is that why we're telling the story?
0: <laughs> you know, it's not. It's not. But you know, but now it is. <coughs> I would say it relates more to the institution of the presidency and our government Mm. and how people will use the cover of, you know, uh, being elected to those offices to cover. Oh, so you
1: agree that you agree that FDR was a fascist. That's where we're going. Sure. sure. Well, what the
0: writers did and what I will argue (laughs) that they not only did well, but beautifully is the thing that Marvel comics has always done well, which is place a mirror on society in a way that it becomes painfully and horribly obvious to the reader who the bad guy is. In many cases, they literally, the writers of the series, just took the words out of Donald Trump's mouth and out of you know his supporters, uh, his mm-hmm. promoters, the very activities that were going on under his regime, and simply just transposed them onto the world of the Marvel Universe, doing very little more than taking the desires espoused by Trump and his supporters to their logical end, like the inhumans. Were demonized with the literally the same language that undocumented people were attacked with by the right during the 20, time of 2016, 2017, and they were systematically rounded up for the protection of the public. Right? We remember when Donald Trump on the campaign trail talked about a Muslim registry. These were things yep. that were not far beyond just taking another step from what was going on at the time.
1: Oh yeah, been good, like. Following through on what he was saying yeah. is essentially all that would have And
0: happened. there are numerous times in this series where some of the heroes who are opposed to Steve uh, have interactions with the general public. And the general public are, you know, saying things like, well, you know, at least we have jobs and it's pretty clean out there these days. And he's Captain mm-hmm. America, you know, so he can't, yeah. he can't be all bad. And when you take the words and actions of the Trump regime and put them on people the reader already knew and accepted as villains— Hydra and people who are who uh, Steve Rogers works with in this time period—it just becomes painfully obvious. And there's also very interesting, and I, I love this part. There was a component of this event that dealt with the issue of the Punisher. I think so. Uh-huh. Marvel is very aware of the way that the right has attempted to co-opt the Punisher skull. Um, and dur-
1: didn't di- isn't there a whole comic that where the Punisher tells cops that he they shouldn't have him as an idol? Like he's like, hey, fuck you guys. There, like- there's
0: been some yeah, there's been some things he they've done where they've tried to directly deal with that, but I think they did it in a more subtle and, and better way. And during this event, um, so the Punisher in this
1: was you keep saying event. What do you, sorry? What so do you mean basically, by event? this like was a, a story, several right?
0: months long where every comic produced by Marvel was related to this event somehow. So it's just all the individual characters. It's just what they're doing during this event. And it ties into okay. a main storyline series where I think there was like 15 issues that were just the main storyline. And then you have all the individual characters with their own issues where they're doing things that, you know, in their universe, all this stuff is going on. So everything um, that's going okay. on with them is related to what's going on here. Right. So but with the Punisher, as far as that went, um, you know, Captain America normally would never work with the Punisher because Captain America is, you know, Steve Rogers, justice, right? Uh, if he were to find mm. the Punisher in the public, he would arrest him, right? That's what Cap would do normally. But because he's been corrupted, yep. he uses the Punisher as one of his tools to carry out the works of his fascist regime, in a way that obviously reflects what was going mm. on in society. And after the event, the Punisher sort of. Uh, he deals with his own feelings of having been used by a uh, evil fascist who he believed because uh, of the symbols that he saw. Because he saw Captain America, someone who he knew to stand He's for truth and is. justice and blah, blah, blah. And he took him at his word, right? Yeah. So I think they did it in a very good way in this. But because of all this, all this stuff they did in this event, which I think was very intricate and interesting and great, People fucking hated it. Oh, I saw.
1: Speaking, speaking of which, and just tangentially, I saw that all the right wingers freaked out at season three of The Boys when all the Mm -hmm. heroes turned out to be fascists.
0: Yeah, man. The oh god, you need to watch The Boys. It's such a great show. Such a great show.
1: I've seen so many memes of it. You know that (laughs) meme that's like, I've seen writers use subtext, and those people are cowards.
0: (laughs) I mean literally like one of the characters of the boys, is yeah. in The Boys is named Stormfront and she's from Portland and she's just a Nazi like I that storyline comes yeah. and this like Garth Ennis when he wrote The Boys like that was there was another character named Stormfront who was a man in that in the comic book version and was literally just he'd been around since the World War 2 and he was a Nazi like it's not very subtle, no. uh, but I, I love the boys. I think it's fantastic. Anyway, sorry, but, I
1: interrupted you. Carry on.
0: So this is one of the worst selling crossover events in, in you know, Marvel's recent times. Um, and there was, you know, multiple people who reacted this in, in ways that I think are stupid. So mm-hmm. there was a very simple-minded, sorry, Captain is, is America fought the, the Nazis. Is this related
1: nah. to the show, or is this just a random?
0: <laughs> this is, Benedict. This okay, is all leading. Okay, okay, okay. So, there were people who were mad that they put Captain America in Hydra, which is on the side of the Nazis, even though Cap fought the Nazis in World War II, and they're like, how dare you? Those are people who are well-meaning but dumb because they don't understand how this whole thing took place and, and why and the symbology behind it. And then there were others... The right-wing shitbags who thought this is comics being political, because they saw very obviously that this was about Donald yeah, Trump and what was going on. Like at
1: the time. people yelling at Rage Against the Machine for being political. Yeah, you know how
0: like, comics have yeah. never been <laughs> never. political except that they always have, particularly Marvel, where Stanley very intentionally and with very, very little nuance created the X-Men as an allegory for African Americans' treatment in the 1960s and 70s, where they were mad about it because it showed them as they truly were as the petty fascists. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that whole thing. And like I said, there's no way I can do justice to the whole plot in its entirety and the many parallels between the Trump administration and the story and the way I think it so pointly explains how and why fascism is able to happen. But I gave that long explanation of a comic book storyline pretty much everybody disliked wrongly because it reflects a lot of what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about the what of fascism and the how of fascism and the why of fascism. And I realized... We have talked. I throw the word fascism around a lot. And a lot. I think really you have become less resistant to me using it as time has progressed. Because uh, I think you are agreeing with me more and more about the amount of fascism we see from the right.
1: Yeah, speak. I think it's also that um, I think overusing it disempowers the term. But I think you do have to call a spade a spade sometimes. Yeah,
0: I, I very much think you do. So. At the beginning of this task of even defining fascism, you know, it's, it's difficult because nobody can agree on a definition, right? We've had plenty of our authors that we review on the show make bad faith arguments that socialism or progressivism or a moderate increase in top marginal tax rates are fascism. Mm-hmm. But even beyond their nonsense, actual scholars and good faith researchers just can't agree on a solid definition of the term.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I, I saw um, I, uh, John Gantz writes a lot of good stuff about this, um, and he's he's just been calling Peter Thiel a fascist recently, which I think is probably correct. <laughs>
0: probably, yeah. And to be fair, there was a great deal of difference between the several fascist regime, regimes that you can clearly point out to be fascist, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. But be- I mean, I, I think, you know, Italy and Spain are much more the nazis stand out on their own in terms of like yeah. there's 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 differences in nazism as compared to italian fascism certainly right. and i think we're probably i mean we're we're probably closer to italian fascism
0: i think that's well i think because of the religious event or the religious um and, and i i will say at the beginning right i intended to cover christian nationalism in this episode originally mm. but when i got writing it and got to 10 pages i'm like okay that that's needs enough. to have its own episode yeah, yeah. um but i think because of the religious aspect from the bottom, I don't think the fascists at the top really care about religion that much, but I think from the bottom... I'd argue that for um, Italian
1: fascism too, really. I mean, I don't think Mussolini really cared about...
0: Religion. No, I agree with that, yeah. but he did invoke God and religion yeah, a lot. Yeah, but that's and, what our politicians yeah. do too.
1: I think <laughs> True. it's the same. I think you invoke it for the base. Is yeah. The,
0: yeah, yeah. But so because, you know, the ver- those various differences and all that... Uh, most attempts to define fascism have mainly been putting together a list of characteristics, not all of which must necessarily be present or in equal measure to realistically call a political movement or regime fascist. Mm-hmm. For this episode, one of the things that I read uh, was Robert Paxson's book, The Anatomy of Fascism. Yep. Uh, and Pax, Paxson, Paxson's if you remember— Paxson's
1: cited in Glenn Beck, is he?
0: Yeah, I was going to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. he. Well, not just Glenn Beck, but he's come up before on this show with Dinesh D'Souza— I didn't go back to look, but I think my memory is telling me that Paxton was the guy that Dinesh tricked into an interview by not telling him who he was. And then he didn't find out it was Dinesh until— And then he tried to frame
1: his stuff (laughs) around FDR, I think, right? Right. yeah, Yeah,
0: Right. Yeah, that was fun stuff. But Paxton pretty loosely defines fascism as, quote, "...a form of political behavior marked by obsessive preoccupation with community decline, humiliation, or victimhood, and by compensatory cults of unity, energy, and purity." in Mm. which a mass-based party of committed nationalist militants working in uneasy but effective collaboration with traditional elites abandons democratic liberties and pursues with redemptive violence and without ethical or legal restraints goals of internal cleansing and external expansion. Mm. And Paxton also argues that the more defining characteristics of fascism are the mobilizing passions that are the defining characteristics rather than any, any elaborated doctrine. Mm -hmm. Uh, doctrines of fascism are sort of incoherent. Uh, They don't really make sense if you try to put them together. So the mobilizing mobilizing passions that he puts forward for fascism are, quote, actually these aren't quotes, these are my paraphrases of them, a sense of overwhelming crisis beyond the reach of any traditional solutions, the primacy of the group towards which one has duties superior to every right, Mm -hmm. whether individual or universal, and the subordination of the individual to it, the belief that one's group is a victim, A sentiment that justifies any action without legal or moral limits against his enemies, both internal and external. Mm -hmm. Dread over the group's decline under the corrosive effects of individual liberalism, class conflict, and alien influences. The need for closer integration of a purer community by consent if possible or by exclusionary violence if necessary. Mm -hmm. The need for authority by natural chiefs, who are always male culminating in a national chieftain who alone is capable of incarnating the group's historical destiny, mm-hmm. uh, the superiority of the leader's instincts over abstract and universal reason, I alone uh, be- fix it, Yeah, the beauty of violence and the efficacy of will when they are devoted to the group's success, and the right of the chosen people to dominate others without restraint from any kind of human or divine law, right being decided by the sole criterion of the group's prowess, within a Darwinian struggle. So a lot of that is, you know, uh, more flowery phrasing. Uh, I did take a lot of that from Paxton directly. So a lot of that is more flowery phrasing than I think we, we really need. But I think another prominent fasci- uh, you know, scholar of fascism who uh, gives a really great uh, breakdown of sort of the characteristics uh, and someone whose, whose view is very influential on the, so- the topic is Umberto Eco. Mm-hmm. Who wrote the 1995 essay *Er Fascism*, mm-hmm. which is very influential in the field? And he listed 14 general properties of fascism. Yeah, this is the ideology. one you always
1: see floating around Twitter. Right. right. It's well, one, actually, actually, one of the museums is it?
0: There. Yeah, there's another one uh, that is 14 general characteristics, which was just written by some dude. Okay. Who <laughs> nobody can really. Like yeah. It was written on, like, a skeptic's blog in the early 2000s. Okay. And this dude just put them out there. So Umberto Eco, and I will link this in the show notes if you want to read it. It's about nine pages or something, I think, if I remember off the top of my head. So it's a quick read, but it's very well written. Eco is a great writer. Uh, he's a philosopher. He gives examples for what he's talking about. Um, and and But this other guy just wrote 14 characteristics on a list and mm-hmm. posted them to a website. And people always quote that sometimes incorrectly as umberto echoes yeah because they do track pretty cl- closely but there are some differences there
1: mm-hmm.
0: i can't figure out who that dude is okay. uh, or or you know where these came from he's wherever he's credited he's like credited as an entrepreneur so like i, I don't know what the deal is with them but um you know he listed 14 general properties echo did Uh, and argue that they aren't possible to organize into a coherent system, but just that any one of them needs to be present to allow fascism to coagulate around it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I've added my commentary to these a little bit, but I will link to the original version of the article if you want to read it. So "The, the cult of tradition, where it is believed all truth and meaning has already been revealed and no new learning can occur, only further interpretation and refinement. So, I think we can see echoes of Christian fascism in that, obviously. As well yeah, as, I think. Founder the, worship, as well, I think. I, is, yeah. yeah. Worship of the Founders was my next one. was yep. I going to say? Uh, two, the rejection of modernism, which views the Enlightenment and the development of thought since then as a descent into depravity, mm-hmm. excluding, usually, technological advancement. Although some eco-fascists would beg to differ with that, and we'll get into eco-fascists that's, uh, later.
1: That's Ben Shapiro hating the Enlightenment. That I was. Cool. Yep. yep, Ben cool. Shapiro so hating the Enlightenment. It's good that we are. You know, like, I pay attention sometimes. You know, this
0: <laughs> given that we have over hundred episodes yeah. at this point, and we, I don't, I don't I can, think I we can are reach experts. Into a whole
1: bag I, of examples. So. I don't
0: think that we are necessarily researchers. We're not but scholars, I,
1: but no. we have anecdotal examples of all this. Shit. We
0: have built a repertoire uh, of information. A that really most sad don't memory have. bank. <laughs> It's sort of what it is. Uh, three, the cult of action for action's sake, which he relates uh, to the anti-intellectualism and attacks on modern culture and science. Uh, four, disagreement as treason, and the devaluation of discourse and suppression of dissent. You know, that's no, yeah. The right easy would argue that
1: that's what's happening on university
0: campuses. I, I was about to say attacks on CRT. Yeah, I think that falls under that pretty easily. Uh, appeal to a frustrated middle class fearing lower groups always that always obsession with a plot and the building of an enemy threat often xenophobic Uh, this is where scapegoating scapegoating of minority groups or the marginalized in society often comes up but also that idea of a plot the idea that everything that happens nothing is accidental everything is on purpose there are people who are directing this behind the scenes I think we see a lot of that that's
1: soricism yep for sure
0: casting their uh no number what number am i on six i, I think, six, I think. Six, yeah. um casting their enemies as both i did, I put them in just regular bullet points rather than numbered bullet points i don't know why i did that uh casting their enemies is both too strong and too weak at the same time yep, they do so, that all the time evil george soros is destroying the world but buying alex jones branded taint wipes will help you defeat him <laughs> right um number seven militarism and perpetual war you know that's pretty present, american I would society, argue. Yep. Yeah, I I would say even if you say well the the right they're anti-war these days. A I don't believe that. B militarization of the police. Right. They the you know if it was against China they'd still want to be at war. They continually talk about China as a military threat. Uh, Contempt for the weak is the next one. You know that's fairly obvious. Uh, I think just going back to last week's reading where we saw Mark Levin talking about the malcontents and Mm -hmm. how they're all that kind of stuff. Uh, the cult of death, where martyrdom is the supreme goal, we see a lot of people. You know, basically Jordan Peterson's existence on Twitter is screaming "Martyr me, please." Uh, is basically. <laughs> I've had an,
1: I've lost there. the argument. Is there, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, next machismo, which uh, Echo says encompasses sexism, cultural conservatism, and homophobia. I'd mm-hmm. say that probably you know that makes sense. The cult of machismo. Cult, Look at yeah. the proud Col- boys. Cult
1: of the cults of the male.
0: Look at the, the paintings of Donald manner, Trump yeah. with a machine so gun funny. and six-pack abs. Uh, yeah, it's right. so funny.
1: The funniest, right. Possibly the funniest thing that came out of the last five years <laughs> yeah. is Ben Garrison just being like, I would love to <laughs> fuck Donald Trump, but in like yeah. a manly
0: way. Uh, uh, I think I'm on 13 now. Selective populism. Uh, the leader as the embodiment of the will of the people and the delegitimization of institutions that the fascists accuse of no longer representing the voice of the people. And this allows the leader to select a group that they claim represents the will of the people because the leader is the interpreter of that will. So that is your true Americans, your real Americans. So even though they represent a minority of the actual public, they are the real Americans. Mm -hmm. This is selective populism in action. This is the leader deciding who actually represents the people, Mm quote-unquote. And finally, Newspeak, which... Echo explains by pointing out how the Nazis limited the contents of school books and lessons. That's what he explains when he's talking about Newspeak in his article. Mm. I think Echo's list makes a lot of sense. And especially if you go and read the article and read what he's talking about. He is someone yeah. who grew up in, in fascist Italy. He was there. He mm-hmm. experienced it. He wrote very—it's it, a beautiful read, I think. Yeah, wrote I, I about think you it,
1: it, it's— potentially overly broad in the sense mm-hmm. that like i think most countries have at least one of those conditions I, I
0: think that's true but i also think that uh his point that fascism doesn't present a coherent ideology mm. um and that so you know when you get to these characteristics it's one of those things like i've done on this show before where i've said yeah, if you have one of these you're not necessarily blank if you have yep. two, you might be. If you get to three, you're probably there, right? It's one of those yeah, things. Yeah, and
1: I mean, uh, to, to, to as you said, like uh, the way Echo presents this is like, these are things that fascism can coalesce around. So these right. are more triggers- of fascism than signs of a fascist state, necessarily.
0: Right, exactly. And, you know, there are, everyone and their dog has written a list of these are the characteristics that define fascism, right? So yeah. you can pick and choose Yeah, I think this, is, this is
1: maybe more interesting, of, like, this is how fascism spawns.
0: Right. And so other phrases you probably heard as characteristics <laughs> of fascism include things like powerful and continuing nationalism, which I think is certainly a characteristic of fascist movements. It's certainly a nationalist movement for the no- most part. Uh, mm-hmm. Many point out that opposition to Marxism and socialism is something that all the classic fascist movements had in common. Um, some have defined it as revolutionary nationalism, which I think there's a good point there. Um, you know, if you look at socialism as revolutionary, in, uh, an internationalist revolutionary movement, uh, mm-hmm. something that be, is beyond borders because it's a class movement revolutionary nationalism as the adverse of that, as fascism, as we talked about my idea of fascism as the right-wing solution to the problems of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense to view it in some sense as revolutionary nationalism. The list goes on, but I think for me, Echo's list with some additions of other factors that I think are typically present and relevant, um, those are sort of the best characterizations we can put together. So things like obsession with degeneracy, Usually, sexual and moral degeneracy, which I think you know is included in echoes, but I, I would list it as its own characteristic because it's. Typically I think that present. goes
1: back to degeneration of society.
0: There, mm-hmm. Right. That's the right. The, but I know, would just say, when he
1: says that he means the traditional. If I was writing
0: a, a list, and, I would include it as a separate characteristic. I think, okay, just to, that's to fine. You,
1: you tell Umberto <laughs> where he's wrong. That's.
0: <laughs> uh, <coughs> disdain for human rights. I think that's pretty common across fascist movements. It's not necessarily something that only fascist movements see, but it certainly is something that's common across fascist movements. Obsession with order and crime and punishment—pretty mm-hmm. common. And then scapegoat
1: or- order over justice.
0: Yes. Right? That's where did we read that? That was in. I don't remember where that was, but it is a good phrase. It's we read really that recently. Order over justice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then scapegoating as a unifying cause, I think, is something mm-hmm. that uh, you know. Look at you know the Nazis with the Jews. Uh, the Italians with the socialists and the, Mo- and the Marxists, same thing with fascist uh, Spain uh, against the Marxists, uh, same thing with the supporters of fascist Spain who supported it because they were fighting against Marxists, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, things like those those always come across from time to time. But looking back in time... To the variety of fascist regimes of the last century, I think it's fair to say that these characteristics applied to them with some variation between the regimes. And by, you know, the classic fascist regimes, I generally mean Nazi Germany, Mussolini's Italy, and Franco is Spain. Those are, yeah, I think, there, the three there, classical there, there fascists.
1: There are more. I would say Salazar's
0: Portugal was possibly
1: teetering, yeah. teetering on it. Um, you could argue Stalin's Russia was teetering on fascism. You could, as you well, could yeah. certainly
0: argue that there was a fascist element of of uh, Stalin's Russia, where we had a cult yeah. of the leader and things like that going on. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And you know, uh, there have been and are fascist movements around the world to this day. And like any political movement, fascism has grown and adapted, morphed into new versions of itself. So for the rest of today's episode, I want to talk a little bit about fascism today and mm. some of those varied forms of fascism, how it actually we'll looks. do, in we'll, the probably do
1: it. Day. we'll do an episode on those historical fascist states mm-hmm. at some point will we? yeah I think I,
0: I think I was either considering doing that when we get to what I've titled international nationalism. Yep, uh, right or that. it might have to be just looking at you know the the three classical fascist states. As an episode. Um, I think
1: it, I think it's worth looking... I think it's worth... We can talk about it off the air, but I mm-hmm. think it's worth looking at Spain and Italy, definitely, because people, I think, know less about that. Yeah. Especially Spain.
0: Yeah. We might... Uh, you know, I keep telling you, you need to present an episode okay, at some point. Fine. So I can write the Spain may, episode. Maybe that you, you are a little bit of a Spain expert, after all. I do just
1: a little bit, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm literally looking at the battle for Spain as I'm talking to you, which is about the Spanish Civil War, so I guess I can do that.
0: But so the question arises... Is the modern Republican Party a fascist party, right? That's the question, right? And, and I'd have to say, absolutely. fucking right? <laughs> it's not a Nazi party. It is no. not a phalangist party, but it is a fascist party. I think you that. So,
1: sorry. Let's let's briefly define the difference between phalangist and fascist. Okay. Then. So,
0: phalangist is the the movement in fascist Spain. It's not Primo, necessi-
1: led by Primo de Rivera. Right. In fact. It
0: is yeah. not. People confuse it with Franco's uh, party. No, it's
1: it's pro. It's street fighting and proto proto fascism. Right.
0: right. It, and so. it was a pro monarchist movement. I yeah. believe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it, and as what? Well. well You could say Franco was pro-monarchist. He talked about wanting the monarchy a lot, but he waited until he was very old and close to death to actually give the monarchy power back. So, you know.
1: Yeah, and then the monarchy didn't act how he thought it was going
0: to act. Right, right. Uh, King Carlos, who uh, gave power back up. King
1: Carlos II gave gave power
0: back up. Uh, And then, I think... Didn't he rape somebody not that long ago? Isn't he actually I, a pretty shitty guy? As it turns out, in his later quite, life.
1: I mean, all monarchists are shitty yeah, guys. I, I don't <laughs> think. He, I'm not sure. I'm, I I don't know. But he did stop a separate second fascist coup in 1981. Yeah, I mean, so he, a, he
0: has good things. I think what I'm thinking of is maybe there was something with the Pandora Papers. I think someone
1: someone in his family, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, there was some yeah, scummy
0: he, scummy stuff involving him in the last the last five years or something. Oh yeah. I think, Por que no yeah, that but, guy the, is? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Go on, so the U.S. Republican Party is a hyper-nationalist party. I don't. Sorry, think- sorry.
1: Yeah, phalangists are often street fighting, mm-hmm. pro-traditionalist, Primo de Rivera types.
0: Right. So like the black shirts, and you know, yep. like uh, like the the early Nazi street fighters, um, less ideological.
1: Probably more like the brown shirts, to be honest. Sure. but Yeah.
0: Less ideological. In the sense that they were, like you said, mainly a street fighting movement. Uh, But, you know, I bring up phalangist because if I say Francoist, we get into... It's not quite right. It's not quite right, right. Uh, But anyway, so the U.S. Republican Party, it's a hyper-nationalist party. Even its staunchest defenders will not deny that. In fact, they'll probably highlight it uh, because they think that's a good thing. It subscribes to a cult of tradition in believing that the U.S. founders picked the best form of government that can't be improved on even though they're wrong about what the founders meant anyways, right? And also, in many ways, having elements of Christian nationalism, in which they believe, again, I think wrongly, that the U.S. is based on the Christian Bible, and that, of course, they don't think that could well, be improved
1: on. In that, 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 and based on the Christ- uh, a mix of the Christian Bible and the Roman Empire.
0: Sure, of course. And we're going to get into a little bit of that Roman love stuff. Uh, here well, that I mean, that
1: that's the basis of Italian fascism. Yeah. the Roman
0: Empire. Yeah. Uh, so we also see scapegoating. I don't think anyone will doubt that. As far as attacking, nope. you know, uh, 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 undocumented immigrants uh, for most of their problems, Muslims for many of their other problems. You know, any any number of groups that they decide are the you know the LGBTQ movement, or not mm-hmm. movement, uh, uh, LGBTQ uh, people. Um, you community. Know, community. The Why for? did I forget that? I'm not the <laughs> one who should forget that. Uh, but, you know, uh, uh, all those are the scapegoats. Because I'm uh, an ally, Kevin, I have to know <laughs> <notice. laughs> All of those are the scapegoats. Uh, oh, that reminds me. So, you know, many... Um, professional organizations will do this and my law firm is is no different uh you can add at the bottom of your email a i'm an ally little flag and it'll put a rainbow oh, flag nice. there it's nice but how does that work for me i'm not an ally yeah, that's true you're just part of the i'm yeah family. right so just give me a flag like i don't yeah. and it's, it's a weird thing because i also i don't want it just to say at the bottom of all my emails i'm queer like i don't want that
1: yeah <laughs> Well, but I mean, It would be, be could, nice to have I a mean, different it, option, it, though. It's a large community. You can be allies to other aspects. I, uh, you know, uh, this is of something the
0: that people in my community talk about, Benedict, right? Yeah. This is something that okay. people in my firm, uh, our LGBTQ group, have talked about. But it's just mm. a funny thing that came up to me. Yeah, but we see right. the obsession with crime and punishment, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all these yeah. things.
1: I, I would say that as we get on to this, I think you could probably say a lot of these same things about the Democrats as well um to it to a certain degree like that that's the that's the thing like a lot of these are very broad categories
0: sure but i think there are some that are clearly set the democratic party apart and no, right now i'm not saying i'm not a, not, lo- not say I'm not not a democratic the, party the bo- booster obviously no but like, i'm not the democratic the party bo- is not a hyper nationalist party right? no that's true but it doesn't I mean, have a cult of tradition uh, it doesn't engage in the sort of scapegoating of have immigrants have a cult and minorities of tradition a little bit i mean Right, but not not okay. You I don't, you don't see the appeals meet... to the founders like you do with the Republican oh, I don't know. Party. I think you do sometimes. I think you see I it, and and here's what I think. I think it is an attempt to counter the right wing attempt to do that, and I think that's well, So dumb. are we are we? Pandering I think it's playing into their, a, their book, uh,
1: but even the, like are we pandering to a fascist populace? Is the like is the populist fascist is the is my question? Maybe
0: I don't you know I like to I like to think not. I, <laughs> but I you might I, have I'm a not, point there. I am not
1: convinced.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I think the most important factor that clearly set the Republican Party apart is that they oppose liberal democracy. Right? Mm-hmm. They oppose the idea of majoritarian rule because they are not the majority. Yeah. Um, and you know I think I I heard somebody saying the other day, uh, and I really liked this, which is that the the issues that people have with liberal democracy are the failings of liberal democracy, right? The fact that liberal democracy supposedly um, provides for freedom and independence and equality and these sorts of things, and it has not actually delivered it. Yeah, and that's people, not
1: the problem Republicans have with it. Right,
0: that, that's not the problem Republicans have. That is the left-wing critique, right? That yeah. is something that the, the social Democrats and people will have uh, with liberal democracy, is that we have failed to provide... The supposed guarantees of liberal democracy.
1: Yeah, and I, I, would say, fundamentally, it's impossible for liberal democracy to provide those things in a in a system where liberal democracy lives. Yeah, I think because liberal democracy exists, it's has to possible. guarantee opposition. Yeah, and therefore there will be opposition to the policies, and it's impossible for. Yeah, carry on. I, yeah, uh, but they. That was a that was a half baked <laughs> thought.
0: <laughs> but the Republican Party, as we know, uh, currently, you know, they're. they're I don't have to talk about the twenty twenty election on this show, right? We all we all know. We don't have to talk about the attempts to overturn it, the fact that majority of the Republican Party now approves of January sixth, the fact that they support voter suppression, gerrymandering, all those sorts of things, and oppose anything that would make the representation in our government more accurately reflect the will of the people.
1: Yeah, I think I again I think it's useful to either delineate or deliberately conflate the party with the
0: People that vote for the
1: party. I, I, or? I
0: don't see any, I don't think there's any difference. I think if you so, want to talk but, but that's to that's
1: what I'm saying. If you're talking about the Republican Party, are you talking about voting that like voters for the Republican I, Party? I think talking, these things using the exist across both parts
0: of the spectrum both the voters and the representatives in the party structure in varying levels, right? There okay. are, of course, among the voters, people who are clueless, who don't know, who haven't thought about these issues. Of course, those things exist.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: but there are very many people in that group. Like I said, the majority of their party, just the voters approve of January 6th. Now, Mm -hmm. uh, you can't get away from that and say, well, they still support liberal democracy. No, they fucking don't. They support overthrowing our government and instituting a fascist dictatorship. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what January 6th was about trying to do. And I'm far from the only person to call the Republican party out as fascist, right? Robert Paxton, the scholar of fascism, who for a long time, resisted applying the fascist label to the Republican Party. Yeah,
1: just like me. What a smart guy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Wrote an editorial in Newsweek on January 11th, 2021. Hey, what is that a few days after? Where he said yeah. he could no longer deny the fascist label for Donald Trump. And uh, although he didn't say it, I would say by extension his party, right? Because the Republican Party is a Donald Trump party. Bar none. There is, uh, it is purely less, a Donald I think, Trump I party.
1: think less so now, but yes. He, he's still in control then. of that party.
0: And even yeah. the, if... People use Donald Trump to control that party base. That's they will, use, they yeah. will invoke his name That's to true. control it. Of course, uh, there are elements supporting Trumpism and the party that are openly and consciously fascist. Eli Mosley, uh, former Proud Boy, leader of Identity Europa, which is now known as the American Identity Movement, um, and one of the organizers of the Unite the Right, Benedict, do you want to guess where he, oh, it, do you think Eli Mosley is his real name? no uh do you th- where do you think he got that fake name from uh.
1: Stormfront, I don't know.
0: Mosley. Benedict Oswald Mosley. Oh, okay. He literally took Oswald Mosley, the British fascist. Sta- His real name is Eli Klein. Uh, okay. He took he took Mosley from Oswald Mosley because he's an open fascist. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's he's Fun one of the... Fun or- fact
1: about Oswald Mosley, he nearly defeated Neville Chamberlain in the 1928 election. So the Britain's wartime prime minister might never have been <laughs> in government had Oswald Mosley defeated him.
0: Yeah. That- Isn't that crazy? Yeah. That's a little crazy. Um, In fact, it's easier to actually look at where I I would say this is what's easier, is to look at where the Republican Party differs from the traditional fascist movements rather than looking at the points of similarity because the similarities vastly outweigh the differences. So I sat down and tried to write out a good faith list of differences. I bet that's
1: that's where the majority of these 10 pages come from. No. No? (laughs) It's about
0: about two paragraphs of differences from the traditional fascist movements. One, they don't promote corporatism. So, in the sense of fascist corporatism, fascism is the right-wing solution to capitalism's problem. It rejects socialism and Marxism while promoting greater control over industry. Uh, Autarky or internal self-sufficiency, is the primary economic goal of fascists because of their nationalist Mm -hmm. bent. And I think we see that in the Republican Party, promoting internal self-sufficiency, the constant call for making things in America, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Although you could point to the willingness to attack and regulate corporations that don't bend the knee on social issues as going down the road of corporatism. You could you could say that that's getting there. Um, Sorry, can you uh,
1: define yourself? So terms a corporatism, bit, as
0: I would say, it existed in fascist Italy and in Nazi Germany was much greater uh, organization and involvement of the government in corporate affairs. So much more uh, of the government giving direct edicts to corporations and companies on what they need to do. And that's not surprising, given it was the middle of a war, and they were saying, you need to make X number of tanks.
1: I think the Republican Party would do that if they could.
0: You know, maybe, maybe. I will say that their their rhetoric is against regulation of businesses so, yeah, but uh, saying
1: that Delta Delta did something and then they took Delta's again. I'm trying to put, put down good faith
0: was. differences. I'm trying okay, to well, say I'm this is where they're different. And, and I, yeah, oh, no, no, okay. disagree with me all you want, please. Second, number two, they have different scapegoating targets than the fascists of the past, mostly because the world has changed. Right. So they can't use the Jews anymore. Right. That's that's the main yeah. part there. Uh, still, you know, they will still you know socialist, Marxist. Those are still their scapegoating targets for many of them. Yeah. So so for the most part, but for the most. Cultural Marxist. Most of the Republican Party does not blame the Jews for most of their stuff these days. So we got that. Explicitly. Right. I almost put down that they don't engage in the sort of propaganda art of the leader. And then I remembered the Trump portraits as Rambo and shit and that they actually think he looks cool.
1: Yeah. It's not the same, though. No,
0: it is. I will say the McDonald's version of a Mussolini portrait. That's, yeah. that's- <laughs> I,
1: I I would also Sorry. say that um, I think art as a propaganda tool is less
0: less used these days, right?
1: Less well, because now it's fucking memes, isn't it? Mm. Like that's the thing. Like it's 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 like that the replacement of classical art. You know, and of, that reminds me. I memes, think yeah. at
0: the last CPAC, and I think probably the CPAC before that too, if I remember properly, they had uh, who's that meme guy? Count Dankula at yeah, yeah. fucking CPAC. CPAC—that's yeah. supposed to be yep. a serious event—and they had a guy who calls himself Count Dankula, and all he mm-hmm. does is make memes. So yep. yeah,
1: so that's 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 art as propaganda these days. Yeah. is memes.
0: Um, next, they don't support a monarchy in the strict sense that Franco literally wanted to reinstate the monarchy in Spain. Although, as I said, one could argue that's what that you Franco was monarchy. Then. One could say that Franco wasn't really into the monarchy; he just pretended to be, you know. But the Republican Party does not profess to be in support of a monarchy. Okay? Well,
1: it, it is having a eternal leader who can be re- re-
0: re-elected
1: as many times <laughs> as you <the laughs> want. Like, like they what's don't, the look, difference? They
0: don't want to make Trump king, but, you know, like, maybe king? In all but name. You know? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, you know, yeah exactly. Look, again, these are good faith efforts.
1: Um, it's very much like Julius Caesar being crowned and the crowd doing yeah. and then oh, <laughs> take it off then, yeah. Oh. And the
0: last one I have on my list is that they aren't yet back to being as openly gay as the fascists of the past were yet, but they're obviously on that road to getting there right they're they're, they're on their way down that path. Um, so that's my list of good right. and I, I look I only, I didn't spend a ton of time on that but I did I legitimately tried to put together some good faith differences between the Republican Party and the fascist movements of the past. I I literally did.
1: Do you want to expand on the openly gay stuff? I mean... I don't know that people know that necessarily. The
0: Nazis sent gay people to concentration camps. Um, The Republican Party just wants to take away our right to marry who we want. At oh, so point.
1: sorry, you mean openly anti gay? Yes, that that's what I meant. Did okay. I say it way? Openly gay. Oh, I no. Was like, I was like, that's an interesting way of <laughs> no, looking at no, Ernst have influence been a, over uh, the early Nazi <laughs> party. Like, <laughs>
0: that might have been a flub of mine. Yeah. I um, think he said it. But that's gay. my list. And we could talk okay. all day about how the party itself, uh, the body politic of the Republican Party, has gone full in on fascism, right? Which is easy to do given the populist origins of fascism, which I don't think we've talked about but that are apparent in its characteristics, right? Scapegoating is a classic populist move. But I'd rather talk a bit more about, uh, you know, the the branches of fascism present in the modern right that are right in your face in American politics in the Trump Mm -hmm. era. And first, I will say the classical branch of fascism, which has bled into American politics, most evident through a fellow by the name of Stephen K. Bannon. Mm Mm-hmm. And Bannon, of course, was the chief advisor to Donald Trump during his campaign. And for, I don't remember how long after he was actually put into office, maybe it was a year or two like of the administration.
1: Yeah, yeah, I want to say that. Like a year or Yeah,
0: I don't remember when he ended up leaving the White House. Uh, but Bannon's influence on right-wing propaganda and thought cannot be understated, right? He's a rich weirdo who was a founding board member of Breitbart, which is a propaganda site, and I probably don't have to note that for our audience. But he is also, it should be noted, a fascist And a white supremacist, undeniably. Uh, An ex-wife of his revealed during a divorce proceeding that he had objected to a private school choice for their daughters because he believed that the school had too many Jews. Cool. Um, A former Breitbart writer claims that he once praised the white supremacist outlet American Renaissance for, quote, fighting the same fight as Bannon was doing. Uh, he has repeatedly cited the white supremacist novel The Camp of the Saints by Jean Raspail, which I mentioned on a previous yep, episode, in which we will be discussing on an episode about uh, fascist literature. But uh, suffice it to say, it is one of the most racist things you can probably read. I said, I think before, that one of the main characters, the non-white characters, just is literally named the Turd Eater. Like, okay, that's... It's bad shit. Yeah, uh, it's not great. But beyond the regular, everyday racism, Bannon is, of course, a fascist. Because racism and fascism often go hand in hand, but they're not necessarily tied to each other, right? A classical fascist. And classical, probably because he's one of the few people on the right who actually reads a book every now and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has many times cited the Russian neo-fascist philosopher Alexander Dugan who promotes a form of fascism he calls Eurasianism, and coincidentally who Putin is very fond of, probably for that reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, He has also said that he's fascinated by Mussolini, and called him a guy's guy with all the best fashion sense. Which, you don't compliment fascists unless you're sort of into them. You just don't. That's true. Uh, He has quoted the French fascist Charles Marat to a French diplomat while he was working in the White House. And of course, There's the fact that he's a big fan of the Italian fascist philosopher and Nazi collaborator, Julius Evola. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is something that was said about him for a long time and then confirmed in leaked emails between him and the neo-Nazi Milo Yiannopoulos uh, when Bannon told Milo that he appreciated any time Evola got a mention. Uh, I believe this is when Milo was still working at Breitbart. uh, And Bannon had supposedly stepped aside but obviously was still doing some directing behind the scenes. So Julius Evola just so you all know, and understand why this is how classical fascism, I think, got its foot in the door at the White House, other than, you know, there are other people also named Steve at the White House who were clearly fascists, uh, is the man who likely had the largest role in crafting Mussolini's version of fascism. Uh, Evola was a writer, a spiritual racist, which is a defined term, uh, who believed that miscegenation could literally lead to the destruction of souls. Uh, he was a virulent anti-Semite, of course, and he wrote, was a prominent scholar of fascist thought. Uh, in 1941, he wrote a book titled, Synthesis of the Doctrine of Race, which was, you know, racism. Uh, after having spent a few years in Hitler's Germany, uh, which Mussolini read that book, he enjoyed it, uh, and that led to the two of them meeting a few years later and striking up a friendship that would last until Mussolini got what he deserved. Uh <laughs> And I'm, by the way, that reminds me, do you remember that time when, um, God, who was it that drew the picture? Um, um, The actor. Why am I blanking on his name? Bruce Almighty.
1: Jim Carrey. Jim
0: Carrey. When Jim Carrey, you know how he does, he does art. He drew a picture of Mussolini hanging from a lamppost and tweeted it, and Mussolini's granddaughter got mad about it on Twitter and called him a bastard. <laughs> I don't remember that. You that's... don't remember that? Oh, that no. was a great moment. That was a really great moment. <laughs> Apparently it she's is. a she's a politician in Italy these days. Is uh, she a fascist? I you know, I haven't looked into her enough to say, but she's mad when people make fun of her grandfather. <laughs>
1: I mean, you would be, I guess. Uh, Oh, you
0: know what? You know, I have to put a hard no. I would say if my grandfather was Mussolini... I would be the first one to say, ah, hang the motherfucker. I'd be down with it. Ah, fuck that guy. I'd be cool with it, yeah. Sort of like the thing where, like, you know, if I was related to slaveholders and I found out that there was a slave uprising on their plantation and they got murdered, I'd be like, yeah, they fucking deserved it. That's how I'd feel about it. Uh, But anyways, I mean, they were really friends. Like, when Mussolini was deposed in 1943 and then escaped, Evola was at Hitler's Wolfslayer, which was the Eastern Front headquarters, waiting for Mussolini to arrive. Uh, Evola then lived out the rest of the war in Austria because he was a fascist and thus safe there. Uh, So the chief advisor to the Republican president was a big fan of this guy, a literal Nazi collaborator. And I'm sorry, you're just not allowed to like the guy or his works. Look, the Rolling Stones are great, but if Mick Jagger ever shook hands with Himmler... I'd say we probably need to stop playing start-me-up to bring out leadoff haters at baseball games. We just probably shouldn't do that anymore. In fact, um, Bannon, he strongly identifies what he calls traditionalists. Um, in 2017, he founded a fascist group called The Movement, which is totally not an ominous name or anything, which basically promotes right-wing groups in Europe and has you know, gotten praise from Viktor Orban, the hum- Hungarian mm-hmm. fascist. You may recall a story about him trying to buy a monastery, uh, which was covered. It was covered. Yeah, it was covered in that QAnon documentary uh, on HBO uh, Mm, because like, yeah, it's. I think you should. It's really interesting. Uh, But uh, I think that was this project he was doing that for. He wanted to turn it into like a right wing training site, which is a little scary. So, for the rest of the episode, I want to talk about one other incarnation of fascism, uh, including some terms that have been used. Uh, for specific focuses of the fascist movement. And we're going to be talking about eco-fascism. I originally okay. intended to cover Christian nationalism in this episode, too, like I said, but it's going to be its own episode. So eco-fascism, I don't know if it could accurately be called a subcategory of fascism on its own, or instead more of a strategy employed by some fascists. That's mm-hmm. sort of how I look at it. But regardless of how you characterize it, eco-fascism is, according to people who are wrong, an ideology that proposes totalitarian means to combat degradation of the natural world or climate change, etc. It is really frustrating to me when I see media figures treating it (laughs) this way. Because that's fucking wrong. That's not what it
1: is. So what's right, then?
0: Well, to be fair, there are a handful of people who actually have thought that way in the past, right? There's a guy named Penti Linkola, who was a Finnish ecologist uh, who advocated ending democracy and using any means necessary, including genocide, if necessary, to combat climate change, right? Mm -hmm. He was a proponent of what he called lifeboat ethics, which is pretty much what it sounds like. If the lifeboat is full, you push the people clinging to the sides into the water so that those inside can survive.
1: And as far as I can tell... That's that's eugenics, right. is what that is. And yeah.
0: As far as I can tell, he didn't have a significant following in any sort of way. And the most influence he seems to have ever had is that he had a charity he founded to preserve ancient forests in Finland. Um, And when he died, the prime minister said, well, we didn't agree with him, but he sure cared about stuff he cared about, basically. (laughs) Okay. He's really not. He sure
1: had opinions. Yeah. And he's
0: certainly not a figure that anyone in the modern fascist movement knows or cares about. And there are a handful of others like that, right? Uh, Savitri Devi, the Nazi spy in India, um, who wrote about humans and animals had basically having equal standing. Um, Garrett Hardin. Uh, a white supremacist who wrote a great deal of early important work about the tragedy of the commons, but later on just went full on racist and fascist. So, real ecofascism, by which I mean ecofascism as actually practiced, has taken on a much different tenor. It is one of a few things. More often than not, it takes the form of either an attempt to co opt leftist positions by idiot fascists who think they can pick off a few tankies that believe they actually mean what they're saying or far more often, it takes the form of a blood-and-soil ecology. And this is less concerned with actual ecology or conservationism than it is with a mystical sort of connection between the people and their homeland. So, Madison Grant uh, was a co-founder of the American conservation movement. He is sometimes called the founder of eco-fascism. He fought to keep the bison from going extinct, create uh, Glacier and Denali National Parks, preserve the bald eagles and he was a close friend of teddy roosevelt and herbert hoover oh that's good yeah uh and by the way a big old racist yep Uh, that seems right too (laughs) he wrote a 1916 book titled the passing of the great race which is was a book about racial hygiene and posited that northern europeans who he called nordics were the supreme race um, and a man you may have
1: Everyone heard of. Everyone really got mixed up in some bad eugenic yep. shit in
0: the 1910s yep, and 20s. It was a
1: real dark it period. us. It was a bad time. Us.
0: A man you may have heard of by the name of Adolf, uh, wrote a letter to Madison Grant in which he mm. called that book, quote, My Bible. Which one, Hitler or Eichmann? <laughs> <laughs> Hitler. It was Hitler. Okay. You know, if I'm referencing an Adolf, either. you know who it is. Um, Grant was also the head of the American Eugenics Society and advocated the elimination of other races to achieve racial purity. Great. And he campaigned for the Immigration Restriction Act of 1924, also known as the Asian Exclusion Act, which was designed purposefully to maintain U.S. racial homogeneity, basically keeping the racial mix at its current level at that time. Fun fact. If you remember the America First Party manifesto that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and those creepy weirdos, I think Paul Gosar was part of that as well. Uh, that document specifically made a point of mentioning pre-1965 immigration and said that the okay. immigrants before 1965 were more desirable, yeah. i.e. more white, than, you know, the 1965 act... They weren't at the time. People hated the Italians <laughs> well, at the time. Well, the 1965 act that that is referencing was one that repealed the Immigration Act of 1924 and the the racial quotas that it put in place. The Chinese racist one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, So uh, this guy, uh, Madison Grant, he has been cited by American neo-Nazi Richard Spencer uh, and, of course, the mass-murdering fascist Anders Breivik in his manifesto. Uh, And speaking of Breivik, it should be noted that several mass-murdering white supremacists have professed eco-fascism in their manifestos. A little bit of content warning. We're going to talk about these in the next couple of minutes. So if you don't want to hear about it, skip ahead a ways. Uh, Ted Kaczynski, Kaczynski, the Unabomber. I think can be accurately called an eco-fascist. Oh, definitely yep. an
1: His manifesto,
0: yeah, yeah. which was titled Industrial Society and Its Future, posits that his ideology would create a world that is more ecologically sound and simultaneously more free, although free for whom, I don't exactly know. It's a bad yeah. manifesto. People call it well-written. I looked. I I was read. I didn't read the entire thing, but I was reading a good portion of it the other day, and I'm like, this is just rambly nonsense. Why do people think this is yeah, well-written? Yeah, it's a lot of dross. Yeah. Uh, Anders Breivik, as previously noted, He cited heavily from the Unabomber's Manifesto, although where Kaczynski blamed socialists and leftists for problems, uh, Brevik edited those passages to instead blame blacks and Muslims, which is great. Uh, Brendan Tarrant, the Christchurch shooter, described himself as an eco-fascist, and it should be noted that his manifesto was titled The Great Replacement. Um, He believed Mm -hmm. that ecological issues could be solved by deporting non-whites and that races needed to stay in their quote-unquote native lands. The white guy in Australia said, uh, yeah. also, or New Zealand, not sorry, not Australia.
1: New Zealand. I'm um, I'm not certain how that solves ecological problems. They
0: aren't either. <laughs> they
1: can't explain <laughs> no, okay. that
0: portion of it to you. They
1: really can't because... <laughs> Let, let's not try and explain the fascist <laughs> well, manifestos on second like thought. Like I said,
0: like... it's it's a blood and soil ecology. It's not really about no. ecology or conservation or anything. It's about the blood and soil component, right? It's about, mm. and I'll talk about it in a moment, but continuing the 2019 El Paso shooter, uh, wrote a manifesto that was largely copying, copying Brendan Tarrant. And it should be noted that from basically, you know, Brendan Tarrant on, there was like a 4chan troll, you know, these are what I will call the 4chan shooters, right? The Chan shooters, people who were radicalized yeah. online, who were in these bad warped web communities. Um, there was a, for some of these guys, an aspect of trolling that went into their manifestos.
1: Yeah, I would also say we don't have to listen to what they no. say their motivations are. Like,
0: no, I, I think at some point they realized that if they called themselves eco-fascists, the right-wing media would seize upon it to claim that they were left-wing, which took the blame yeah. off of you know their side of the political spectrum. Um, the Buffalo shooter last month, by the way, also described himself as an eco-fascist, and it's I think it's sort of that sick trolling that they're doing because because these people don't care about the environment, right? Uh, the right-wing media, in you know, pointing out that they say they're eco-fascist, is sort of admitting the right-wing doesn't care about the environment. Um, yep. But at best, I would say, this sort of eco-fascism can be described as libertarian ecology. That is, saying that you love the environment while not doing anything to protect it besides attacking the people you blame for all your problems. Well, I
1: think that's the that's the mainstream Republican solution to climate change. Now, I think there's there's, I know we'd still talk about climate change not being real, but I think there's a bit more mainstream acceptance of climate change as a mm-hmm. thing. They just don't think the government is responsible
0: to solve well, it. it yeah. They're
1: like, ah, oh, we'll get technology. It's to scapegoating. Solve it like it's well, why
0: years. don't you talk about China building coal plants? We can't exactly. have clean coal at home, even though that's not a thing, but China can build new coal
1: plants. No. It feels like it feels more accepted now that it's just a thing that's happening, yeah. but it's not their responsibility to try and fix yeah. it. Yeah.
0: Well this this blood and soil ecology is at its core more about aesthetics and propaganda than actual ecology. It's about imagining a white family running through green hills full of flowers. Not about combating climate change, right? It's just about using the word ecology to cover your racism. Nothing more. Pure aesthetics. And aesthetics are a very, very important thing for fascists, right? Which brings me to something that I have characterized as a component of ecofascism, and I think the more dominant strain of ecofascism, uh, rather than any actual environment Oriented form, mm-hmm. despite not really seeing anyone out there besides me discussing it in this manner, but it's the fascist obsession with architecture, specifically an obsession with classical architecture, or more accurately, a hatred yeah. of modern architecture.
1: I, I think that's that's point one of Umberto Eco, though, isn't it? Like a traditionalist society and beauty of tradition. Yeah, you again
0: going back to those are broad points, you could fold a lot into them, but I think that this is part of how this modern incarnation is taking place. There's a lot of this aesthetic complaints. These are purely aesthetic yeah. complaints. Cities are ugly. I want to live out where it's beautiful, in the wild. We might differ
1: here on eco fashion whether this is constitutional I will and I think I not. think
0: it's a part of eco fashion. I
1: I I would say this is more part of traditional fashion. It
0: could be, but I I have characterized it for myself as part of ecofascism and I'm going to— That's fine. I I look, sometimes we have to disagree. <laughs> that's that's fine. But I found my point of disagreement <laughs> in the episode. On December 21st, 2020, Donald Trump signed an executive order designating classical architecture as the preferred style for federal buildings in D.C. Absolutely
1: crazy definition, by right. the
0: way. Like, what does that even mean? It doesn't mean much. And this wasn't unprompted, right? Um, as the right, particularly notably through the most powerful fascist in America, Tucker Carlson, uh, have had a bit of an obsession with architecture for years. And Tucker even promoted this executive early uh, order early on in the process, as you can hear in this clip
2: great here in washington meanwhile
0: and and i'm sorry for the buzz i have no idea why that's in this clip but it's the only version i could find and it's it's just a bad hum in the background so i'm sorry for that
2: ugly government buildings are as common as the mentally ill homeless who live outside them employees of the departments of labor education and energy are stuck in brutalist piles that make you wince as you drive by who would design a building that evokes dread in everyone who looks at it well, petty authoritarians who hate other people and want them to suffer. Okay, that's a leap, isn't it? That's a bit of yeah, a leap. it is. Also,
1: brutalists really did themselves a disservice by calling it brutalism. Mm. You know what, though? Because it's not it's got nothing to do with it being brutal. Mm. It's concrete brew, which is the material that's made. I have of.
0: seen some brutalist buildings that I find actually to be very interesting aesthetically. Uh, the community yeah. college I went to in Sacramento was built back in the 1960s uh, and had some very, you know brutalist buildings that were built you know in that style yeah, at the, the time i
1: mean the barbican is one of the most famous london yep. uh buildings and that's brutalist
2: that's the only possible explanation for this
1: take a no it's w- not
2: there, there are many other explanations for
1: it in the probably they were built in the out- aftermath of world war Two, uh and trying to make the most of the usable yep. space look at the
2: headquarters of the department of health and human services next time you're in dc AND YOU'LL FEEL THE SAME WAY, SICK TO YOUR STOMACH. IF YOU CAN HANDLE IT, WALK
0: FROM THERE. I I LIVED IN D.C. FOR THREE YEARS. I WENT PAST THAT BUILDING MANY TIMES. I NEVER FELT SICK TO MY STOMACH. CAN VERIFY.
2: YEAH. TO THE J. EDGAR HOOVER BUILDING ON 9TH AND PENNSYLVANIA AVENUE. THIS IS THE HEADQUARTERS OF THE FBI, AMERICA'S MOST POWERFUL LAW ENFORCEMENT AGENCY. THE BUILDING IS A SHOCKING EXPRESSION OF HOSTILITY TO ALL THINGS HUMAN AND BEAUTIFUL. It looks like a so political prison in downtown Pyongyang. Actually, no, it's too ugly for North Korea. Ser- <laughs> it's too ugly for North Korea. What a
1: fucking baby. Yeah. What a dramatic baby. So I'm
0: going to skip forward a little bit to where- get to where he talks about the executive order. Here we go. Okay.
2: It doesn't have to be this way. Soon, hopefully, it won't be this way. A draft executive order making its way through the White House right now would prohibit the construction of any more government buildings that are garbage. The order would mandate that all federal buildings adhere to a classical architectural style. The style, by the way, reflected in the U.S. Capitol, in the Supreme Court, in all the other monuments that our citizens travel to Washington, D.C. to see.
1: The executive order has
2: received, of course, basically no attention in the media. It's not related to Russia, so they don't care. But you should care. It's one of the single most important things we can do to improve our physical environment. And hence our lives. Okay, this, this is, is a is great very, country. Like, someone, it deserves someone to be a beautiful like, country.
1: Pause a sec. For someone who's like, oh, we take care too much about what the bubble of DC thinks. Uh-huh. This guy being like, we should improve my walk to work <laughs> with better buildings, and that's super important oh, for the country. You think he walks? Commons. Please. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but I know.
0: that's from February seventh, twenty twenty, months before the order was actually signed, and. I will, you know, part of my argument that this is a component of eco-fascism is his statement there, and something that's echoed throughout a lot of this, that this is one of the primary things we can do to improve our physical environment. That is the way this is framed for them. And it isn't purely a matter of aesthetics, because their ideology is, you know, devoid of anything meaningful. So you have to focus on aesthetics. That's what it comes down to. And... Yeah, Tucker is far from the only fascist figure to obsess on this issue, and there's
1: oh, there's so many Twitter accounts. Oh that are yeah, like look at the, and then they all end up tweeting about like women being used to be so beautiful, <laughs> uh, you know, when they were modern. They like, all end up being featured by that incel to, pickup yeah,
0: line Twitter account. Exactly,
1: yeah, it goes from <laughs> architecture to look how beautiful women used to be in the fifties, very very quickly.
0: Um, but there's so there's a very interesting piece written in Pharos, which is a classics blog run by the faculty and students of Vassar College. That focuses, this entire blog, this whole website, focuses on the appropriation of Greco-Roman antiquity by hate groups. It's yep, fascinating. Right. It is bookmarked on my browser now because I found it doing research for this episode. And it is really awesome and interesting. Of course, I'll link it in the show notes. You should definitely check it out. These I was so happy when I found people are doing this work because I, saw, I find it so fascinating. But in 2017, Paul Joseph Watson, good That's friend awesome. of ours now pretty well-known neo-Nazi fascist, released a video titled Why Modern Architecture Sucks, making the same complaint as Tucker, essentially. Why Modern Architecture Sucks. (laughs) You do it better than I do. (laughs) I'll play a short piece of it for you here. Why should we care about the architecture that surrounds us? This isn't just about feeling aesthetically pleased by what we see. Buildings broadcast a message. Good and bad architecture can lift or subdue the human spirit. The architecture we leave behind also represents the legacy of our contribution to human history. The buildings we build directly impact our quality of life and the nature of the environment that surrounds us. And that's why this matters, because aesthetic ugliness encourages ugly behavior municipal pride evaporates you're a- so
1: yet yeah, uh, sorry does he think that roman society was not absolutely
0: <laughs> well that is actually something i will get to in a little bit i have a i have a paragraph okay. written in my notes we're here, an hour and a half about, in. it might I
1: be time aware. to get to it <laughs>
0: i'm sorry this is taking so long but i am fascinated and this is a great episode but A 2019 article, just for other examples, on the white supremacist site National Vanguard, which is a breakaway of the neo-Nazi group National Alliance, who we've talked about before on the show, posted an article titled, Aryan Culture, the Augustan Altar of Peace in Rome in which the dumbass author of that article wrote, The altar is a manifestation of the Aryan spirit of the classical world that inspired the architects of National Socialist Germany and Fascist Italy some 2,000 years later. It is an example of the artistic glories that our race can achieve once it is freed from the shackles of the decadent ethos of the modern era another racist website titled countercurrents uh Sorry, it, again does he think that this wasn't decadent like, <laughs> what do you it's think the very, it's like, the very idea of decadent into, yeah if you look if you look at a picture of the altar of peace it is an ornate elaborate heavily marble, decorated yeah yeah it's just fucking the exact definition of decadent um Uh, countercurrents, this racist website, in a book review of a book titled Hitler and the Power of Aesthetics, called Hitler the, quote, greatest art patron of the 20th century for his dream of forging a state whose artistic and cultural achievements would rival those of ancient Greece or Rome. Uh, the Daily Stormer, I don't need to tell you that's a white supremacist website, you know by this point, wrote, quote, white Southerners are living like the Italians, are like the Italians living among the ruins of the Roman Empire. These monuments are reminders that we used to be a great people and can be so again. In the 19th century, the southern people were a race of masters, explorers, settlers, statesmen, Mm, military leaders, and orators. Masters Masters was very prominently placed at the beginning of that list. We see neoclassical Greco-Roman architecture and Greek and Roman place names all over the south, because that's who our classically educated ancestors admired and wanted to be like.
1: Okay, but just because you called somewhere Rome South carolina doesn't you know <laughs> it doesn't make it like the ancient Romans.
0: paris texas benedict yeah exactly. uh and then after richard spencer's gym canceled his membership uh one of his websites had a post attacking the woman who had recognized him and reported him to the gym which said quote The same strong white who built the civilization this parasite now inhabits, who erected the mighty neoclassical state architecture of the city in which she dwells, who have given their lives to secure this land and territory on which she treads, would have their families blown to bits by drones if this vile woman had her way. Sorry, this is... After he got his gym membership (laughs) cancelled.
1: A real sulky boy. Okay.
0: (laughs) So why obsess over architecture? After all, it's an issue of personal taste, right? As far as what you prefer buildings to look like. But as we've discussed, elevating opinion to the position of fact and positioning aesthetics at the forefront is a way to avoid the emptiness of their actual politics. It's culture war bullshit at its finest. It is the very phrase, remember what they took from us. That Mm -hmm. rings a bell, doesn't it? Yep. As like, you know, reject modernity, embrace tradition, something the fascists say all the time. Oh. But obviously, we know, as you mentioned, if you is t- another,
1: another one of those annoying things where like, I actually quite like classical architecture, but I have
0: to not <laughs> like it publicly. You know, you like can it like pl- it. It no, is possible to like it and not be fascist. It I know, certainly is. I
1: know, I know. But actually, I prefer gothic architecture. So that's fine.
0: But obviously, we know, and as you mentioned, if you took these people and placed them in classical Greece or Rome, as much as they pretend they might like it, we know they'd absolutely hate so much about the society that they were placed in, right? (laughs) The reality of those times is very different than the glorious past that they pretend it represents.
1: Super homoerotic,
0: first of all, (laughs) like... And I, I think one of the funniest examples that touches on that, uh, the sort of, I'll call it McDonald's classicism, uh, is a picture I found of an Identity Europa rally uh, which is the the white supremacist group founded by Nathan D'Amigo, who was part of Unite the Right, in front of a replica of the Parthenon in Nashville, Tennessee. And they're just standing there holding, like, flares and flags and shit, and there's, like, a drone taking a picture of them. I thought it was really funny. But while you may consider modern architecture sort of a capitalist movement that embraces efficient but less expensive design to create less beautiful but more useful and cheaper to build and maintain buildings versus a more expensive, less practical but more beautiful one. That's the thing. Also, the
1: market has won. That's Mm -hmm. why buildings are the way they are.
0: Right. But to the fascist, modern architecture is a deliberate attempt to degrade the West, as you can hear Tucker Carlson argue in this next clip. And this is from a speech that Tucker gave in Hungary. During one of his, oh, you know, recent Orban jolt's. love fests. Yeah. Uh, so the more, majority of this speech focused on Hungary's anti-immigration actions, which then led into talking about this portion. Yeah, and I, I am sorry. This is not just, Benedict was just telling me he could barely hear this, but it is not just a Benedict problem. Uh, the audio on this is very low, and I tried to find another version of it, but this one is just, it's quiet for some reason. I will try and bump up the volume in post, but uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes.
2: But the downside to that, the flip side, the obverse, the other side of the coin, as you say in Hungary, Sorry, Americans—that <laughs> That is not just a Hungarian phrase. <laughs> yeah, that
1: is a widely <laughs> used expression. <laughs>
2: have No sense of how bad things can get. That it actually could be a lot worse. Our physical isolation cuts us off from the history of the rest of the world. There's not a passion to study what happened before in a place that you're building anew, right? Right. What? So did he we don't agree have with himself. So I.
0: Ah, li- uh, yeah, he does do that a lot, and also I should notice Tucker Carlson constantly refers to himself with the royal we. He always does that. He talk okay. when he's talking about, uh, you know, what he did for his show. He'll say we did X, Y, or Z because he's a weirdo.
1: Well, he I might be just giving
2: his team credit to be fair.
0: No, no. When you listen to him a lot, you it becomes very clear he is using the royal we.
2: Okay. Also, oh, let me just—the only visitor to your nation who's complimented your. Small arms and artillery scars.
0: But he was talking about bullet holes in buildings. I think I might have talked over it a little bit, just so you clear.
2: Uh-huh. Here's what I like more about the landscape of Hungary, a few Soviet remnants notwithstanding. It's pretty. It is pretty. The buildings are pretty. The architecture uplifts. That's
1: true of Budapest. So this is,
2: another, this is another third rail in American politics. You're not allowed to know that our buildings are grotesque and dehumanizing. Also, Budapest Why has a bunch bad of Soviet
1: and buildings. And ugly yeah.
2: dehumanizes us. And by let me be more precise about what I mean when I say dehumanizing. Dehumanizing is the act of convincing people that they don't matter, that they are less significant than the larger whole, that they are not distinct souls, that they are not unique, that they are not created by God, that they are merely putty in the hands of some larger force. That they must obey. This is what all authoritarian movements Sorry, do. Sorry, what do you, you
0: think don't God matter. Is? <laughs> that, you know, that is something I always point out when people go to that line of argument. But yeah, there, there, there's the, the, the greater force. You think that the government's a greater force, but God is not a greater force? Yeah. That doesn't make much that sense. That you must obey. Yeah, very weird.
2: We're all the same. Ugly architecture, brutalist architecture, glass and steel architecture, Mies van der Rohe architecture, was designed to send that message. Not to uplift, but to oppress.
1: That is not true at all. It was designed to be cheap housing for people after the fucking World Wars destroyed economies.
0: Yeah, but you see, you, and this is something we see a lot, right? The, and this is something that came up in our list of fascist characteristics. Everything is a plot. <laughs> this is intentional. Nothing can be just a result of factors existing in the world, this is they are doing this
1: to but, you th- you know they always do that too and it's always done around like German cities where mm-hmm. they like they do like a uh, this is what it looked like at the turn of the 19th century or turn of the 20th century and then this is what it looks like mm-hmm. now and then people in the comments are always like yeah because it got firebombed <laughs> and all the buildings <laughs> fell down and they had to build new buildings
0: yeah yeah like yeah the the Reich's Chancellery was was very pretty it was a beautiful yeah. building um, but you know I think it might have looked better after they chopped that giant Nazi uh, eagle off the top or or whatever the fuck that was. Uh, Now, there's a lot in there in that clip, but one thing I want to highlight in particular is a particular name that Tucker dropped, Van der Rohe Architecture, which is a uh, referring to a man by the name of Ludwig Mies van der Rohe. An architect...
1: uh, Oh, it's a different Ludwig Mies.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: Not not Luther Vandross.
0: No, not (laughs) Not Luther Vandross. (laughs) Uh, An architect and professor of architecture born in 1886 in Aachen, Germany. Uh, and he was one of the leading figures in the interwar period, the post-World War One period, of a new architectural movement that sought to move beyond neoclassical and create a style that they thought would be suitable for the modern industrial age. They wanted to create a movement of architecture that was it for its own era. Mm-hmm. And as such, he was one of the first modern architects. And starting in 1930, he took over as the director of the Bauhaus, which was a German yep, art school. famous. Sco- yep. However, his tenure was not exactly the most stable in the school's lifetime. Uh in 1932. Yeah. In nineteen thirty-two, the Nazis, who also despised modern architecture, forced the school off of the state-owned campus it had previously been on in Dessau, and Van der Rohe moved it to an abandoned telephone factory in Berlin. Uh Albert Speer, the personal architect of Hitler, was an opponent of Van der Rohe and the modernist style, and Wilhelm Frick, the Nazi interior minister, labeled the Bauhaus un-German and a front for communists and liberals. Uh, As a result, the Gestapo raided uh, the Bauhaus in 1933, and shortly after, Van der Rohe and the faculty voted to close the school. Uh, He eventually left Germany in 1937 and emigrated to the United States, where he had a long career influencing modern architecture, designing Mm -hmm. a lot of buildings, a lot of them in Chicago. He has a lot of buildings in Chicago for some reason. I don't know Beautiful city, by the way. Yeah, beautiful city. Now, it is not fair to call Van der Rohe a victim of the Nazis. Uh, After he left Germany, he actually continued to submit designs to the Nazi government, trying to get contracts, and he doesn't appear to have been particularly strongly averse to them but the nazis certainly hated his style they despised modern architecture and if you know if you read up on uh, albert speer and uh, hitler's idea to completely rebuild berlin as a new city with all this classical architecture you know it, it becomes very clear that they were not a fan of this either and i don't particularly think it's i think it is relevant that when tucker decides on somebody to attack it's somebody who the Nazis forced out of the country because they hated his architectural style. <laughs> I, I just, I don't think you can overlook it, right? Yeah, underneath... I mean, he
1: was, he was an influential person, though, also in the, in the sure,
0: styles. That sure, sure. Yeah. But uh, underneath all of this, and, you know, all the words we've heard from these people today, we can see something that I think is pretty prevalent across the fascist movement, which is an obsession with degeneracy. Uh Uh, As the Nazis labeled the Bauhaus producing degenerate art, both in terms of the architecture and the other forms of art taught there, it wasn't just an architecture school, it taught other forms of art, right? The modern fascists obsess over degeneracy in the forms they find most relevant. And of course, they hate modern art and architecture just as much as, as the Nazis did, I would have to say. Many of you have probably heard of the Degenerate Art Exhibition which was an exhibit held by the Nazis in Munich in 1937, consisting of 600-some pieces of modernist art that had been removed from German museums, or in many cases just confiscated, and included pieces by the likes of Paul Klee and Pablo Picasso, degenerate art was defined by the Nazis as, quote, works that insult German feeling or destroy or confuse natural form or simply reveal an absence of adequate manual or artistic skill. How much of this was just about Hitler not getting into art school? (laughs) No, but genuinely. (laughs) That's a good question, honestly. That is a good question. Uh, Because the ultimate decider of what was degenerate art or not was Hitler. Uh, he he made some personal decisions about particular pieces uh, and whether or not they qualified as degenerate or not,
1: right? Because he, uh, I mean, he was a realist painter, and the school hmm? was like, no.
0: you suck.
1: <laughs> right. Well, it's like yeah, cool for five hundred years ago, but like what now? Like, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, the first three exhumed 300. Uh, rooms, T- two hundred, three hundred years ago. Sorry, yeah. the first three rooms of the exhibit had themes. Uh, the first one was works demeaning of religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second was works by Jewish artists, which is enough right. to be qualified as degenerate for them, of course. And the third was works deemed insulting to women, soldiers, and farmers of Germany. Specifically, uh, the the art in the exhibit often had sarcastic phrases put next to or on them, uh, like a, a you know like a piece of tape going across with a sarcastic phrase. The poster for the event had the German word uh, I didn't write it down. It's either karst or cursed. I don't remember which it is, uh, which is art but in scare quotes intentionally to be sarcastic because scare quotes exist because sarcastic quotes existed even back then. (laughs) Even the Nazis had sarcastic quotes. Even they had them. Uh, The exhibit was portrayed as part of a Jewish Bolshevist conspiracy to corrupt the German people with modernism, even though only six of the 112 artists uh, whose pieces were in there were actually Jewish And after the exhibition, the Nazis continued to remove degenerate art from German collections, uh, with a believed total number of about 16,500 works confiscated and many of them destroyed. Uh, This was in addition, of course, to the burning of degenerate books, the edicts that banned jazz music, and the many other measures that the Nazis took to achieve purity and fight degeneracy. And now, I'm not the type to point to modern fascists attacking library books and music and architecture and art as degenerate and say that they're doing the same thing as the Nazis did, but they're doing the same thing that the Nazis did. They they, they very much are. I have yet to find a non-fascist obsessing over degeneracy like this Mm. because the general public, certainly the left, aren't obsessed with purity and tradition at all costs. Like the no, fascists are.
1: But I, I would say it is a conservative that is a conservative thing too. It's not just a fascist thing. Well, okay. Like th- there <laughs> Fascism are, there is are... a conservative movement. No, no, Benedict. no, but, but there are <laughs> there are pre fascist examples of that.
0: There are, but it is the taking it to the extreme. It is the banning books. Banning books. The Republican Party is banning books, Benedict.
1: Yeah, so did the Spanish Inquisition, though. Like that, that's what. I'm right. Like, you know. I,
0: I, we could make an argument that the Spanish Inquisition was fascist.
1: It was Christian Sh- fascism. Sure. Okay. Fine. So fascism before the existence of fascism. That's...
0: You you could you could very much argue that that was the case. You Benedict, could also but...
1: argue that fascism is refined conservatism. Like, refined in the sense of taking sure. some points of it. Sure. And... Sure.
0: But so, Benedict, that's my that's my episode, and that is my argument. It's way too long. This, I am sorry that we went so long today. I really <laughs> well, am. No,
1: I lose concentration about an hour and 20 You
0: knew you we would go that. an hour and a half, and we are just about an hour and a half on this. That dot, is so.
1: That's no way that's true. We, we are, are an hour, hour and 30 some
0: minutes. Yeah, we are yeah, just yeah. about an hour and a half. So, uh, but, you know, that is my argument that this obsession with architecture um, is how eco fascism. I, I think it is. I, I, think, know, I think because of wrong. the way that they view it. It is a component of eco-fascism.
1: No, I think that's that's uh, a part of traditional fascism.
0: Well, we can agree to disagree because I don't mind if you're wrong on something. And I
1: think eco-fascism tends to, well, I, I think it is often a excuse for like being. It's setting the stage for being fascist in the face of climate crisis.
0: I. Uh, look, that, as I've said, that is how uh, people who cover this will characterize ecofascism. Because if you just look at the word ecofascism, that would seem to be what makes sense. Yeah. But that is not how ecofascism has pl- in in modern society. For the most part, it is things like mass shooters trolling in their manifestos. It is things like uh, you know far right crypto fascists or you know just open fascists trying to co opt the language of the left because they think they can get some tankies to come over and join their their movement. That is how it is yeah, actually taken form. I don't, I just, I don't
1: form. know if that's what eco-fascism is. I think that should have a different name.
0: Maybe. Anyway, but,
1: whatever. We don't have to get into it now. Two hours but in. But I think... Two, I two think, and a half hours oh in. Oh, fuck off. We're an hour and
0: a half in. We agree. I think we can agree at the end of this episode that we both agree the Republican Party is a fascist party. Can we agree on that? I, I, sure. Okay, good. I'm glad I beat you into submission on that one issue. <laughs> If you make me talk
1: for an hour and 40 minutes, I'll agree to anything. I I
0: do, but I I very much, I wanted this episode to make that case in a way. That's part of what I want to do. And because I got this obsession with the architecture thing, that's the other thing I wanted to cover in this episode. But I I hope that we have made the case. And I hope that, you know, if you disagree with me, that's fine. Reach out on Twitter. Let me know if you think I'm wrong on something. I'd I'd love to continue this debate because I sincerely the the things I have said in this episode I sincerely believe uh, and I think they're important things to discuss and and consider. So that is our episode for today. Next episode, by the way, uh, is either going to be and I two ways either Christian nationalism, aka Christian fascism, or international nationalism because Christian nationalism would make sense because what we just talked about today, but I have a partially written outline on international nationalism with some stuff I've really been wanting to talk about. So we'll just see where my enthusiasm takes me in two weeks. Let's do Christian nationalism next. Uh, well, uh, maybe we'll probably end up doing that. Yeah, let's we'll see do Christian nationalism We'll see next, where it goes. Yeah. But, Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, if you just can't get enough of us, and if you appreciate us doing these hour and a half episodes where Benedict gets angry by the end of them. I'm uh, not
1: angry. I just lose concentration. I'm not
0: as good. <laughs> I, don't want the, I don't want the product to suffer. You can go over. To, I think you did very well at the end of today's episode. You, you stayed very engaged.
1: Okay. I uh, know, I thought so. Yeah, yeah, I think it's,
0: you know, because I put together such a great show. Uh, you can go over sure. to patreon.com forward slash NYGBC, become a patron for as little as $1 an episode for patron-only episodes, shout-outs on the show, early releases of our episodes, and more. And as always, we had to give a shout-out to our wonderful and amazing patrons at Daniel Duncan for sc on Twitter, a state politician getting around ad rates at one month a time. Polly Hauptman, Melissa C., Justin Scott Woods, James Mitchell, Richard Drum, Mary, Starshark, JD, George Saulnier, Gamork, Tinkers Dam Janet Yutter Stefan Shannon Hellman Utah Outcast, Paws Brent Lee Dave Barwick Dodd Snow Chris Palmer Bad Bible Stitches Mockingbird Nation Bacaw, Benjamin Carlisle Dexter Allison Megan Ruth Rung the Deceiver Big Easy Blast Me Becky Scott Fairley Steven and Cindy Dimmick AJ Brantley Taro Ticanon Skeptical Seventh and Balls Watterson Thank you all as always for being our patrons That's it for this week's show Till next time how about a kiss for your cousin Dupree? Goodbye. Bye.